Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 13. And what we're going to be doing today is continuing on and talking about agency relationships. Uh, one thing I do want to remind you, if you happen to see this show before we have our first midterm exam, is to remember that we will be having our first midterm exam very quickly. Uh, you should be going to uh, the Blackboard website and checking for the exam date and the exam time, as I mentioned, because we're recording this and, if you will, repurposing or using the lectures again in the future. I don't want to kind of really mention the date because that may confuse people, but suffice it to say you should be going to the Blackboard website and double-checking and getting the exam date and time and the place it's going to be at. Also remember to bring a Scantron 882 and a number two pencil with you. You should have also be preparing yourself by downloading the study guide that I've talked about many, many times. Remember that the study guide is the exam. The idea behind it is that you've taken the time to look up the answers and find the page references, which I think is a good way to help reinforce the materials as you read them. And I think if you have a, the incentive or the ability to get 100 on the test, which I would expect all of you should be able to do, that uh, you'll work that much harder to really uh, read and uh, understand and uh, retain those materials. Uh, what I want to do today is move on from where we left off the last time. We were talking about agency and its responsibilities. We talked about a number of things. Some of the things we did discuss was the fact that remember that when somebody does hire you, as either somebody that's going where they're hiring you to help them sell their home and you're the listing agent, or if you're working with a buyer and the buyer you're, the buyer's asking you to help them find a home to purchase, that you're creating something called an agency relationship with them. Uh, again, one of the analogies that I like to use is it's just like as if you have people out of like sports, sports agents or talent agents or somebody that's representing an actor or an athlete. It's the same situation here. You're being hired to represent either the buyer or the seller, or in some cases both the buyer and the seller, in the purchase or sale of real estate. And remember that you have to be honest and fair in your dealings and that you have what we call a fiduciary responsibility to your clients. In other words, you need to put your clients first when you're dealing with them above your interests. Uh, we also talked about the fact that one of the things that you need to do whenever you're working with anybody is to have them sign or disclose to them which agency relationship you have. In other words, are you representing the buyer, representing the seller, or representing both. There's a document called an agency relationship uh, disclosure statement. You have to have them read and sign, them, sign that so that they understand exactly what it is and what role you play in this process. Another thing that we talked about was the different types of listings that you may have when you're listing a property for sale, and I talked about both extremes. One type of a listing was just an open listing, in other words, where the seller basically said, oh, by the way, if you happen to find somebody that wants to buy my property, I will pay you a commission. So we talked about that kind, and we talked about the advantages and disadvantages of those. And then we talked about an exclusive agency listing or exclusive right to sell. And so we went the whole spectrum of talking about the different types of agency or listing agreements. I think we finally figured out, figure, finished out with talking about a net listing um, type of a relationship where uh, 
you're going to list the property for sale where the seller wants a certain price, and then anything you get above that is yours as far as your compensation goes. And I talked about where I thought that maybe you want to, that would, they said in the book that that's something that's not utilized a lot. And I think I added my little two cents in there in saying, you know, the fact that one of your responsibilities as a, as a listing agent is to help your client establish a very good selling price. And if you're doing that as part of your job and at the same time, maybe, uh, if you will, pricing it at a point that maybe you're making some additional money, that could be considered in the future maybe taking advantage of the client. And I think that's probably why they're not as popular as far as listing agreements go. You really kind of want to do things above board and not re and keep yourself out of court. Uh, uh, by all means, and one of the ways of doing that is full disclosure and helping the client establishing a good selling price and having them understand how that's done, how you go about doing it, and uh, all the different types of data, such as how long houses have been sitting on the market, uh, how many offers they've had, how uh, you know what's the inventory on the market. All those things are important that you express to the client. What we want to do today, though, is we want to move on to something what we call uh, disclosure statements. These are disclosure statements that are made by the people that are selling the property, the homeowner of the property. And, you know, years ago we used to say something like, hey, you know, if you're going to sell something, let the buyer beware. You know, and a lot of people consider that to be, you know, listen, if we manage to sell something and the buyer just is not sharp enough to pick up on the fact that the roof is falling off the house, or the foundation is crumbling, so be it. Well, those days are gone. What has to happen now is that the buyer, or the seller of the house, has to disclose all sorts of things, uh, things that affect the material, material things that affect the uh, the buyer's ability to purchase the house. In other words, you have to tell the buyer things that may be wrong with the house that may possibly affect their decision to not buy it. And so what I want to do is talk about those disclosure statements, talk about what role the agent plays in those disclosure statements, and uh, give you some examples of what they happen to look like, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, what I did want to do is point out in the book here, and I'm going to be moving over the my old friendly document camera here in a minute, about some of the things that you need to be aware of when it comes to these disclosure statements. And by the way, before we get started in this, I want to mention to you that these are filled out by the seller, in other words, the agent just says, here, you are the one disclosing. You fill this out. I'm not going to fill it out for you. You fill it out. Because you, you as an agent never want to be where somebody says, oh, well, you know, well, I was supposed to fill it out. I didn't know that. The agent filled it out for me. It's the client that fills these things out. And so these are filled out at the time that you take the listing on the property. And so when you leave there, these are one of the sets of documents that you as the agent will be taking with you along with a copy of the listing or with the listing agreement. So I want to go through what this is. Uh, they talk here, they just say the law requires sellers of residential property of one from one to four units, which includes triplexes, you know, uh, places that have three units, to provide prospective buyers with a real estate transfer disclosure statement. Okay, and I'll show you what that statement looks like. But what I wanted to do was to just uh, go over what's going to be included in there. It says the agency disclosure statement identifies items of value attached to the structure or the land and states whether these items are in operational, uh, are operational or they work. Okay, and then you're also expressing whether things, 
if there's any kind of defects in the structure or the property or any of the things that deal with it. And I'll go into that in more detail. Now, down below here, it says the following sequence is the events that have to take place when you're doing this. First of all, the transfer disclosure statement should be filled out and signed completely by the seller at the time of the listing of the property. Completely. Uh, since the seller is the one most familiar with the property, he or she must be encouraged to and forthright and honest about all known defects. The thing that you don't want to do is to sell the property to somebody and then later on find out that you did not disclose something that it was quite evident that you knew about. For example, some of those things historically in the past, in fact, uh, legal-wise would be with as damage that you've covered up. Maybe you've had fire in the house and you didn't disclose that and people started to do a remodel and found out the walls were scorched. Uh, or maybe that it was obvious that you painted over things that the foundation was not in good shape. It was obvious you did that. Uh, the other thing that you may find out, too, is that how does, this, how does the buyer find out about this stuff? Well, part of it is because they're living there and they start to notice some things that are wrong. Second of all, your neighbors that have lived in the area next to you for a number of years, all of a sudden maybe they're out there and they're talking. The buyer, the new buyer is talking with the, you know, their new neighbor and they're talking about the house and, hey, do you like the house or whatever? And they come to find out, they say, well, this, this thing is wrong. The roof leaks or, or you, know, there's, uh, you know, it leaks in that room or there's some stains. And the buyer says, oh, yeah, the, the seller used to have a problem with that all the time. He, in fact, he had all kinds of guys out here trying to fix it. So a lot of times you may not realize this, but the neighbor that maybe you do or don't get along with might be the one that might be expressing the problems that you've had. And how would they know? Because they've seen the repair trucks sitting out there or materials coming in and out of the house, so you need to be aware of that. Anyway, number two, the seller's agent, okay, the seller's agent makes a visual diligent inspection of the property, fills out the appropriate section of the transfer disclosure statement and signs at the same time as the seller for the sale. And this, what you as the agent do is that you're doing a due diligence inspection. It's understood that you are not an expert in electrical systems, plumbing systems, carpentry or whatever, but you're walking through the house, you're looking at the accessible areas, which means you're not crawling underneath the house, you're not crawling through the attic, you're not walking on the roof, but you're looking for things that are obviously wrong, okay, that you're supposed to disclose. This is also during a point in time that maybe the, buy, the seller has said to you, oh, by the way, I have a leak or I have a problem. And the agent may say, well, listen, when we get all done with the listing agreement, why don't you take me out there and show me what you're talking about? and then the agent would write down that they observed some kind of a problem. Okay, so it might be together you're doing that. Number three, the buyer should receive a copy of the disclosure statement and sign that he or she has received it before making a written offer. So in other words, if there's something materially wrong with the property, that could make a difference on whether that person that's buying it is going to decide to buy it or not buy it or whether they're going to offer the price that you're asking for. They may offer less price because they think it may take uh, money to fix whatever that problem happens to be. Number four, the buyer's agent must visually inspect the property and fill out the appropriate section of the statement and sign it. So the buyer's agent does that too. And then finally, if the buyer fails to receive the transfer disclosure statement from the pri uh, or prior to the signing of the contractual offer, Okay, he or she has the right to cancel after receipt of the transfer disclosure statement. What that essentially means is that let's say the buyer 
takes a look at the property on the weekend, says, this is a great house. I re- hey, this is really great. And when you really think about it, a lot of times a buyer doesn't spend a lot of time in the house. I mean, on the average, if you have a buyer that actually walks through the house and, in my opinion, spends more than 45 minutes or an hour, that's a long time. Most of the time, buyers are looking through the house, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes, half hour, 45 minutes, maybe at an hour. So they don't have enough time to really see all the things that may be wrong with it. Plus, they're looking through a different set of glasses. If it's a house that they really want, they may have other factors that are influencing them, like mom and dad's house is across the street. So, that, you know, they're, they're going to be close to watch the grandkids or it's in the neighborhood where I grew up or, hey, this is the first big house I've ever bought. So they're looking through rose-colored glasses when they look at it. Now, if the buyer makes the offer and then later on gets the disclosure statement that says the roof leaks or some other problem is associated with the property, I'm using something, some major thing. I wouldn't, I think if the roof leaked, the seller would have fixed it. But the concept is, is the fact that if they discover that and they get the disclosure statement after they made the offer, they can cancel it because they're supposed to be provided it by law prior to the making the offer. So you need to be clear about that. So anyway, now that we've talked about that, what I want to do is I want to show you the agreement so that you at least see what it looks like. Again, this is an agreement that has been created by, if you will, the California Association of Realtors right up here. So pretty much all the forums that we talk about in this class, by and large, are created by, used, checked, validated, inspected on a, on a very frequent basis by the, associate, by the attorneys for the association to make sure they're all up to date and they reflect the current laws. Uh, this is a transfer disclosure statement, real estate transfer disclosure statement. And uh, it's going to start here, and I'm just going to go through some of this uh, to kind of orientate you to what is being uh, said here. But anyway, it says, this disclosure statement concerns the real property situated in the city of, and this would be like Sacramento or Elk Grove or whatever, the county of Sacramento, the state of California, described as, and you would put the address down here, okay, common address. It says, this statement is a disclosure of the condition of the above-described property in compliance with this section, which is 1102 of the Civil Code, as of a specific date. Now, the reason why dates are always important in disclosures in real estate, and you see that all the time, is because it's as of today. It could possibly be that tomorrow, after this date, something went wrong, that the seller had no, had, had absolutely no knowledge of. And I, an example I could give you of that personal experience, not that it happened to me when I was selling a property, but a personal experience from owning homes is roofs. A lot of the houses in Sacramento, for some unknown reason, I don't know why, have shake roofs. You know, this is the worst area to have a shake roof. Because what happens in Sacramento, shake roofs are really constructed out of wood, wood shingles, that really where they should be used is in an area that has a lot of moisture, a lot of water. Because what they do is they swell up and they help cover up the tar paper that's underneath, you know, that's underneath there. There's the tar paper or the roofing paper that really keeps the water out. The problem we have in Sacramento is that we have two extremes. We have essentially about six or seven months of nothing but pure heat with very little rain. During that period of time, those roofs, all the water, because they're sitting right up in the sun, gets drained out of there, so they become a fire hazard. 
and they also have really no moisture. All the moisture has been taken out, and they tend to crack. In other words, they crack and they start to fall apart, or you see them crack. Then usually around October, November, we get a lot of winds, you know, which blow, starts blowing away these pieces of, <laughs> of the shake roof. And then all of a sudden we may get like a flash rain where, you know, we, we watch in the weather and we find that, hey, tomorrow it's going to really rain and it's going to rain a lot within a short period of time. Well, the roofing material hasn't had enough time to, to, to absorb the moisture and cover that up. And the next thing you know, that flash rain starts to cause a, a leak in the house. Now, the cellar, that didn't happen last year. They lived in that house. Maybe they had a lot of storms. It was no problem. Now it starts to rain this year. And it's just the year that the roof starts to come apart and the seller is not lying. They're not, it's not that they're not disclosing. It's something they didn't know about. Same thing with appliances like dishwashers, garage door openers. There's a lot of things that work today don't work tomorrow. So be aware of that. It may not be that the seller is lying. It's just that they're telling the truth. That's why the date is important. So anyway, it is not a warranty of any kind by the seller or the agents representing the principals in the transaction and is not a substitute for inspections or warranties by the principals. What that essentially means is a warranty is where something is, you're buying something and something goes wrong after you buy it and you can take it back and get it fixed. Like with a car, a warranty is you take it back to the dealership and say, you know, I bought this a couple, you know, a couple weeks ago, and the tires are going flat, or the brakes are squeaking. That's covered by the warranty. Okay, we're not warrantying anything. Okay, nothing whatsoever. We're not doing. And also, they're disclosing to the seller or to the buyer that this is not a substitute for having professional inspections. So today, for example, we have home inspectors that'll go out and inspect the house for obvious defects, and they'll write a report. We have inspectors that will do pool inspections. If you have a pool, you may want to have somebody come out and take a look at the pool, see if it needs to be resurfaced, if there's something wrong with the tile, if the pumps are working correctly, whatever. You don't want to move in and find out something else is wrong with it. You may find somebody's going to come out and look at the hot tub. Uh, you may find out that you may have a roof that's questionable. You're going to have a roof inspector come out or somebody's going to look at the roof. By the way, one thing I want to mention to you, every time they come out and do their inspection, in most cases, they're not warranting anything either. In other words, when they tell you that they've done an inspection and found this stuff wrong, it does not mean that they found this wrong and everything else is correct. It means that this is what they found wrong. <laughs> they're also not saying to you, by the way, if I didn't find something wrong, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay to have it fixed. They're not doing that. They're just giving you, rendering to you, an opinion of what they found wrong on that day at that time, okay? So that, and, and not to cloud the issue, that's typically the reason why a lot of times home sellers will turn around and buy a warranty program for the new buyers, you know, just in case, but that's a separate insurance policy that they'll buy, you know, when they buy the house uh, for the sellers. Now, what I want to point out here is that what kinds of things are the sellers actually doing? The first thing they're asking the seller is, what kind of stuff do you have in the house? What kind of stuff? And they start out with the kitchen, and it, the way you read this is it goes from left to right. Okay? So, for example, and I'm going to blow this up as best I can, they're saying the subject, and here you're not attesting to whether it works or it doesn't work. You're just conducting an inventory here. So it's saying, for example, do you have a range? Do you have an oven? Do you have... 
a microwave? Do you have a dishwasher, a trash compactor, a garbage disposal? Do you have those things? Yes or no? Some houses have them, some don't. Do you have, a, and you'll notice, do you have dishwasher, uh, washer, dryer hookups? Do you have burger alarms, antennas, satellite dishes, septic tank, all this stuff? Do you have all of this? And you're either going to check it if you have it, and if you don't have it, you won't check it. That's all you're really doing here. Okay? Uh, they'll ask you things like a hot tub, pool, uh, spas, uh, you know, your gas supply. Do you have gas supply? Is it a propane? Is it city? What is it? That's all they're asking for. Down here, they'll ask you, for example, do you have exhaust fans? And exhaust fans, and where are they located? Exhaust fans would be in places like the bathroom, okay, or in possibly the kitchen. Do you have 220-volt um, wiring? Typically, that's what's used for ovens, ranges, and uh, uh, dryers, electrical dryers, unless you have a gas system in the house. Uh, do you have fireplaces? Do you have a gas starter? A gas starter would be where, you know, you flip a switch. Like in my house, I have a gas fireplace. I flip a switch, and it just goes click, 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 and bang, it starts, okay, a gas starter. Do you have, what kind of roof do you have? What's the age of the roof? Anything else? That's what you're doing here. And then below it says, are there, this is the master question, are there, to the best of the seller's knowledge, any of the above that are not in operating condition, yes or no? If you say there is something that does not work, then they want you to specify what that is. Okay? It would not be uncommon for you to maybe have something that you're getting ready to sell the house. Maybe it's something that's not critical to the house. Uh, an example would be like an intercom system. You know, Some of these intercom systems that have been put in houses have been around for years, and you've gone down, you've tried to fix it, you've tried, it's all wired, but, you know, you, it just doesn't work. And you say to the people, listen, if you buy this house, it has an intercom, but it doesn't work. I, so I don't want to hear any complaints. It does not work. It has no material effect of how well the house lives in it, whatever. You can do what you want, replace it, but I'm not warranting or guaranteeing or telling you anything. As far as I know, it does not work. If you want to buy the house, understand it's not working. You make it really clear. Uh, so it's very important that you, you, know, you disclose that, okay? On the next page... They're asking you, again, for the property address and the date. And it says, are you, the seller, aware of significant defects, malfunctions in any of the following? And here they're talking about things like interior walls. Are there any problems with the interior walls? You know, maybe they're not attached correctly or they're not uh, whatever. Are there anything wrong with the ceilings, uh, floors? Uh, exterior walls, cracked, insulation, roof. Are, are there anything? Windows? Do the windows leak? Do they have, uh, for example, when I sold the house a couple years ago, I have the, had windows, and the, one of the problems with the older dual-pane windows is that they, they actually get, like, moisture in between. They leak. And so what I did is before I ever put the house on the market, I had them all replaced. You know, I had some that were replaced in the front of the house. It cost me $1,000. I just replaced them because it was easier for me to just do that. Period, end of discussion. Okay, so that would be something. Is there some kind of a defect? As I walk through some of these older houses, I see those kinds of things, especially the old windows. They're really a problem. They really get moisture in there, and then what happens is they don't really do the job they're supposed to do. Then they become very difficult to see through. Okay, and you may not even know you have a problem until, you know, you open them really up and take a look at them. 
and you say, God, there's moisture in there, when, especially when you get out there and try to clean them and you find out you can't clean them. Um, are there any problems with the driveways, the sidewalks, fences, electrical systems, whatever it happens to be? Are there anything? And if there is, then you need to describe what it is. If any of the above don't work, you need to describe that. Put as many different statements down that you need to explain what that situation happens to be. The next thing they're doing is they're asking you the garage door opener. This garage door opener or child pool may or may not be in compliance. Okay, what they essentially mean is the fact that garage doors <clears throat> today have to have a child protection with them. So if the door comes down, what they do is they put these two, if you will, for lack of a better word, electric eyes right near the foot of the, of the door. The idea is, is that if, it does two things. If this door starting to come down and all of a sudden a child rides their, the picture is their tricycle or bicycle through there, what happens is it breaks that beam and immediately the door comes back up again. So it's to protect children. Also, two doors are set so that if they come down, there's a certain amount of pressure that they'll say, there's something there that I may hurt, and it'll come back up again. That's why you may have a problem getting the door up and down, and you need to make adjustments. For child safety and protection, you can have uh, uh, where you have alarms on all exterior doors so that in case the kids, somebody gets out there, those alarms are set so the minute you open them, and if you go out and open it and then close it, the alarm continues to go off, and the sound is terrible. It's to protect the kids. Uh, in case they fall in a pool, to, you know, to let them know that, you know, hey, they're out in that area, you need to keep an eye on them. So you have to have that. And they'd be on things like the garage doors that go to the backyard, um, the back sliding glass doors, any of those doors. Also, a lot of people will have uh, nets that go over the pools. So in case a child falls in the pool, it makes enough noise or it sets some sort of an alarm off. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, down below there, you have things that are you, the seller, aware of any of the following? So here they're asking you for some more things. They're saying substances, materials, or products which may uh, be environmentally hazardous, hazardous but uh, such as asbestos, formaldehyde, radiant gas, lead-based paint, any of those things, yes or no? Asbestos is a problem in a lot of older houses. You know, it's there. And... Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize it's there. Uh, I had one house where I had to have it re-roofed one time, and half the cost of the roofing job was proper disposal of the asbestos. In other words, hiring a contractor that was licensed to come in with appropriate permits to take the asbestos away and dispose of it correctly. And so uh, that can be a problem. Uh, features of the property shared in common, such as adjoining uh, with other landowners, fences, things like that. Any encroachments. So are you aware of the fact that the neighbor's fence is on your property or your fence is on their property? Or are you aware of some easements that maybe are not recorded that you need to be telling the people about? Okay, those types of things. This is a big one here. Do you have any room additions, structural modifications, or other alternatives or repairs made without the necessary permits? I'm here to tell you one thing, that if I was to ask everybody on this campus, in fact, if I went around Sacramento and I asked people and I gave them certain circumstances and I said, you know, do you have to have a permit to put up a fence? I'd get some people that would say yes, some people that would say no, Okay. Some people may ask, the, one of the questions they may ask is, where are we going to put the fence up? Because the, build, the requirements are different depending upon where the property is located. <laughs> you may find out that in Elk Grove, 
may have one requirement in Sacramento County, may have another requirement in El Dorado Hills, another requirement. Uh, uh, one of the things that I found when I got ready to sell my house is the fact that uh, a lot of people will go down and get building permits, and, uh, and now the computer systems are sort of helping out now, but a lot of people pull bu- building permits, and there are a lot of permits that are outstanding that people never go back and actually have the final physical inspection done. Two situations that I had, three situations that I had, I had a heating system put in in-house, and for some unknown reason, the building inspector never came out. He was there, but never signed it off. Now, probably the reason why is maybe there was, the contractor wasn't there when he can't showed up, and we went along for a long period of time and then found out it was never signed off. Had the same situation happen with a roof that was done. Again, I think probably what happened in that condition, the guy that put the roof on wasn't there at that time. And I had the third time I had was with a pool. And I went to the county and I asked them, this is in El Dorado County, I said, you know, is this a common occurrence? And they said, we have thousands of people out there that pull permits to do work on a house and never really get the final inspection or never get an inspection call because in some cases, you know, they never do any work. They pull the permit, but they never do any work. So the point is, is that it's the seller's responsibility to make sure that they have the appropriate permits for anything that they do, additions uh, to property, modifications, or whatever. And if they don't have the permit, they need to disclose that. Okay. Uh, anyway, going down here, any floodage or draining problems you may have, uh, neighborhood noise problems and nuisances, covenants, conditions, and restrictions. It just goes on and on. So the only point here is that if that situation exists, you just have to say yes, and you have to disclose what it is down here. Okay, very important. Now, the next thing after the owner has done, oh, by the way, by the, the seller, after they're all done, has to sign this right here. The seller signs and dates that this is correct, what they've said. And then this is given to the buyer. Okay? Now, the agent also has disclosures that they have to make. And again, this is a due diligence type of inspection. You may find out, for example, when you happen to be a real estate agent and you go out and take a look at a house, and especially if it's completely furnished, the garage is full of stuff, you can only see what you can see. You know, you can go out there and take a look, but I mean, if there's furniture against the walls, and I think the other thing, too, is that a buyer needs to understand that these inspector, every type of inspection and disclosure is done is done to the best of the people's knowledge. And also, in this particular case, the agent is not asking the seller to move furniture. They're not asking them to take the tools off the wall or anything else. They are looking for what they can obviously see. That's what they're looking at. So down here it says, okay, agent's inspection to be completed only if the seller is represented by an agent, right? The undersigned based on the above inquiry of the sellers as to the condition of the property and based on a reasonably competent, diligent visual inspection of the accessible areas of the property in conjunction with that inquiry states the following. If the agent finds nothing wrong, they check that box. If the agent does find something wrong, they check that box and they explain what that happens to be. Now, this could be something that the agent finds. You know, they may find something that's maybe uh, something as simple as an electrical plate that's missing off the wall, a wall outlet. They may find some of these things, and the seller may correct that before it ever goes on the market. 
maybe some minor defect. But anyway, this is what's put down there, whatever they find wrong. Then this is the, uh, down here, this is the, to be completed only if the agent, uh, only if the agent has obtained the offer, uh, is, is the offer of the agent above. This is the agent's disclosure here. And then down here it says buyers and sellers may wish to obtain. Again, this is another statement to remind them. Buyers and sellers may wish to obtain professional advice and or inspections of the property and to provide for appropriate provisions in the contract between the buyer and the seller with respect to advice and inspection defects, meaning the fact that they may, when they make the purchase offer on the property, they very well may say, I want, I, or I agree to pay this amount of money for the house subject to me having an inspector look at it. If the inspector finds, for example, the, the, one of the inspections that done, that is done in almost all cases, is a termite inspection. As a result of that termite inspection, that termite inspector may find five, six, seven, ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of damage. And what happens is, is that gets disclosed to the buyer. That inspector may have been hired by the seller, it may have been hired by the buyer, but the fact is they may negotiate that and say, you know what, I paid for the inspection, I found out, you know, your whole deck is dry rotted, I want you to replace it. If you don't replace it, I'm not going to buy the house. Or I'll agree to buy the house, but I want to split the cost with you, something along that line. So it's a negotiable item, you want to know what it is. Down below, this is where the buyer and the seller sign, Okay. Again, it's the idea that full disclosure of what may be wrong with the property. Okay, I think that covers the um, disclosure stuff. Now, there's a few other things that you may want to be aware of that they point out here. Number one is that brokers will have things called trust accounts, okay, that they keep clients' money in. These accounts are audited by the Department of Real Estate. Uh, the Department of Real Estate, if they find anything that's wrong with the account, will find the, the broker. And this is one of the areas that real estate agents and brokers can get in a lot of trouble with because it's handling the client's money. What they really are trying to do is prevent the fact that you cannot put the client's money into an account, say a deposit for $5,000 for the purchase of a house, and then turn around and start writing checks to buy a new car against it. That money is to be kept in that account only for the use of the client. In fact, they actually even come down here and tell you that what can and can't be put in the account. So it says that a broker accepting money, a money deposit and instructions is required to give it to the principal, place it in a trust account, or give it to an escrow company. Deposits other than the initial deposit, usually about $200, to start the account are never are never the personal property of the broker. The only reason why you even have that money in the account is to, for example, pay for the banking fees, pay for the checks that may be written against there, pay the cost. That's the only amount of money that's in there that you have. Everything else is client's money. That's also the reason why you may find a lot of brokers or agents will just say when you make out the deposit check, make it out to this title company. So you don't have to really worry about that. Okay, it's just one less headache. Another thing that they point in here is that you as an agent and the, or the broker has to keep what we call a transaction file, file or folder of all of the documents and all of the correspondence that's happened with the transaction. 
And what it does is it says a transaction file a folder, all documents kept for three years by the broker for each real estate transaction in which the broker or his or her salesperson participated. And again, um, you want to do this because you never know when uh, any of this information is going to come up again that you're going to need it for all sorts of reasons. It could be for a lot of reasons. It could be because you're involved in a lawsuit. It could be because there's some kind of a, uh, uh, a uh, something filed against you, uh, you that you did something incorrect. It could be as simple as just being able to answer a client's question, you know, like what was the name of the title company we used. It could be for anything, but you need to keep that on hand for three years. Okay. You're going to find out, by the way, most legal documents of any kind have a period of time that whoever participates in the process has to keep files of those for some period of time before they can destroy them or get rid of them. Okay, um, the next thing they talk about in here is what we refer to as, um, you know, when you become a real estate agent, one of the things that you become is an independent contractor, in most cases with the real estate agency. I'm just only going to point out in here, they have an example of a, a real estate, a contract. You may very well find out whoever the company you're working with or working for, uh, in other words, the, the real estate broker may have a different kind of a contract, may use this contract, they may have more stuff they're going to have you sign. They may very well have policy manuals they want you to review and sign. So there could be a lot of different things, a lot of procedures, a lot of processes they're going to work with. But I think to suffice it to say that what's important about this particular document, that if you're going to take and go to work for somebody, what you basically want to do is to make sure that you understand the rules of the games and what you can and cannot do and how you're going to be compensated, what's going to happen to your listings if you happen to leave. All those things are important, and they're all in writing. Like most things in writing, we never, may never use them. They may never come up, except if you have a dispute or a misunderstanding. So, again, this is an independent contractor form. It's the date, who it happens to be between, which would be you and the broker. This talks about that you're the, uh, who the broker is, this who the associate or the licensee is, so that would be you. It talks about the independent contractor status. Suffice it to say, realize, again, that, a real estate agent is really not an employee of the broker. And when I say employee, I mean you're not, the broker is not telling you that you can't have to take your break between 9 and 9.30 or that you can't take a coffee break or these are the lunch hour or something like that or you have to be here at 9 o'clock in the morning and you can't go home till 5. You're not an employee in that sense. What you really are, though, is that you are working underneath the broker's license. And because you're working underneath the real estate broker's license, the broker is responsible for your professional activities. So you're going to spend a lot of time in here where the broker is going to be explaining to you how you're going to conduct your day-to-day -day business, what you're going to do when you get a listing on a property, what the process is, and when the broker is going to want to review that and make sure that you've done things correctly, how you're going to ha handle things like offers, uh, counter offers, uh, things like renting and leasing of property, a trust account funds, how you're going to handle all that stuff is going to be in this agreement. That's what they're going to be responsible for. They're going to talk about licensed activity. In other words, what you can do is uh, with your license. 
On this side over here, they're going to be talking about uh, proprietary information and files. Proprietary means that that's owned by the, by the broker. The broker has no, has all beliefs that you're not going to go ahead and be disclosing information that's proprietary or private, if you will, to the broker, to everybody else. That you have a responsibility not to do that. So they're letting you know about that. They're also talking about supervision, talking about trust funds. The broker, they're talking about your compensation, how you're going to get paid. In other words, what commission splits are you going to be on? How are you going to get paid? Again, in this contract could be more detailed in how they do that. Uh, there's all different ways that people get compensated. They can be compensated on everything from a, if you're a new agent, you may have a 50-50 split. You may have where you, after you sell a certain amount of real estate, your percentage goes up. So all those are individual between you and the broker. So it's important that you know what that is. This part here talks about partners and teams. There's a lot more of that in the last number of years where people are joining together and working as a team. Uh, a lot of times people do that because they say they may say, you know what, I'm really good at going out and getting listings. I do that really well, but I'm really not very good at paperwork. And if I could spend more time working on getting listings and you could just <laughs> take care of the paperwork, we could both be more effective. Okay, or you're better at working with buyers and I'm better at working with sellers. Is that kind of an idea? Um, they talk about expenses. They talk about what happens after termination, you know, upon termination and termination of the agreement. Okay, so I, I don't want to kind of beat that to death, but there's all kinds of things in that agreement you need to make sure you read and understand that, especially if you are getting involved with, uh, you know, going to work for a real estate broker, making sure you understand what it is that you have. You want to know things like, am I going to pay for the telephone? Who's paying for the MLS system? Am I paying for my advertising? Are you paying for your advertising? You know, you want to know all these details. In fact, we always say that when you get your license, you should actually be going out and interviewing brokers, and you should see whether the fit is there. You know, do you and that person get along? Do you want to work there? Do you feel comfortable there? Do you feel you're going to get the right training, the right support? That's very important. And like anything else, like there's vanilla chocolate and strawberry ice cream, we also have large brokerages, small ones, boutique brokerages, independent people. And the reason why is because people like to do different things different ways. There's no right or wrong way. There's no better way. It's which way works best for you. Um, the last thing that we want to talk about in here before I show you one more thing is termination of this agency relationship, okay? In other words, how do we terminate this agency relationship that we have formed with a client, if you will? So one of the ways that you can do it, in other words, the relationship gets terminated, is by what we call operation of law. And underneath that category, we can just have something called an expiration of the agency agreement. In other words, time has come to the end. The property has not sold. You have decided that you've done everything in your ability to sell it. The seller may or may not be happy with you. Maybe they want to take it back off the market, but the, the date is here. It's ended. Okay? That underneath here... So you can have expiration of the agency agreement. One of the ways is uh, is by having a destruction of the property, okay? And the other way is death or incapacity of the broker or the seller. If you have a listing agreement, that's a way you can do it. 
On the other hand, over here, on this is by operational law, on acts of the seller or the broker, you can have where the agreement by both the broker and uh, agreement by both the broker and the seller. Now, this is sometimes what happens. You may hire, or a, a seller may hire you, and say, you know, I want to sell my house, and I've done a lot of looking around. I think you're a great person to sell the house. And after you work together for a while, you find out, you know, in either case that either the seller and you are not getting along, and the seller decides they want to terminate the agreement, or you as the agent may say, you know what, I don't, I am not working well with the seller. And that could be for a lot of reasons. For example, the seller may say to you, I want you to list the house for sale, but I don't want you to put a sign up. I don't want to have open houses. I don't want to do this. I don't want <laughs> And you may turn around and say, you know what, it's obvious that we're not going to work well together. So I think what we ought to do is just kind of maybe part ways, okay? You go find somebody else. I'll go find another client. So that could be a reason why. Uh, and that would be revocation of the listing by the seller, okay? Uh, again, renouncement of the listing by the buyer, okay? So anyway, these are ways that, you know, if you will, you know, the agency agreement can more or less go away and, and end. Otherwise, I think pretty much that part of the... Uh, of what's in the chapter is finished. What I want to do now is there was one thing that I thought was important, uh, not necessarily because I am a uh, computer guy, uh, but I think it's important for me to at least show you, and I'm going to see if I can find this particular page. Okay. This is called, this is called here on the, uh, book, it's talking about photoreality, seeing is believing. And what they talk about in the book here is they talk about, um, they talk about the fact of what we call virtual tours. And I just thought it was important that I would kind of throw this in. It's not going to cost any extra. But I wanted to give you an example of one company in town here that does this. Uh, one of the people that owns the company, his name is Michael Begley. Uh, and uh, I thought that it was important uh, for you to see how some of these virtual tours work. And the concept behind this is that what's happening today is that most people, when they get ready to buy a house, may not even be located in the local community. They may be coming from another area. So what ends up happening is they, and usually when people are moving to the area, they may, may very well be meeting with you as a real estate agent, and they may only have a few days to sit down and meet with you and take a look at houses. Usually the best ideal situation is maybe they're going to be in town for a week and they, you can work with them for a week. But usually they're starting to look, most buyers are starting today their initial buying process by looking at the Internet because it's very easy to do. I mean, uh, there's just uh, most real estate agents are putting their website links up. Uh, you can go to Realtor.com, www.realtor.com, and look at houses that are for sale all over the United States. Uh, Lion Realtors has a wonderful website that they, has a lot of properties that they show you all of their stuff. Colwell Bankers, another one. They all have different places where they're showing you these houses. But the virtual tour concept is that you have the ability to take and walk or look through the house Go shopping and looking and seeing the outside, the inside, what it looks like before you ever go there to help you make a better informed decision. So I want to show you what that may look like. Down at the bottom, they break this down into two, uh, they break it down into services, 
services here, and they break it down into software. Services, these are companies that provide this kind of a service, and there's many of them. Some of them are related and make their profit by, by uh, providing the virtual tours and also providing other kinds of advertising for mortgages and stuff like that. Over here on the right-hand side, this happens to be software that you can use to do this, and there's a lot of different types of software. This is only a small amount. If you're ever interested in this, all you ever have to do is go to the Internet, go to Google, and put in virtual tours or virtual, and you can find, you can find all kinds of information about it. But what I did for the purposes of this class is underneath chapter, the chapter that we're talking about in the, in the uh, Blackboard website, I have put a link to something that I want to show you, which is right here. So I'm going to go to Website Links, see if this comes up. And I'm going to go down to here where it says, uh, let me see, Agency and its Responsibilities. And I'm going to open this up. And this is a, a local company that does stuff around the Sacramento community. I put a little bit of a description. It's called CyberView 360. I'm going to open them up here in a separate window so you can see what they basically look like. And I'm going to be, and again, this may look different on your TV and it may also look different on your computer screen when you open it up, depending upon what resolution you have. Just so you have an idea of what's on this site, down here we have their home page. We have About Us, which just talks about what they basically do and how they do it. They have their portfolio, which is an example of some properties that they have basically done. So you can take a look at it, and I'll be showing you one house in particular. They have how to contact them. They have the tour window. They're going to have a thing on here called the tour window, which becomes important to the end user to understand what all these little buttons and stuff do. Because you can have like a slideshow. You can have uh, um, a flyer that they create for you to put on the, the little flyer box that's outside the property. They have slideshows. They have a number of different things that you have. You have the ability to email this page to your, say, to your friend if they're looking for property in the Sacramento area. Okay, let me uh, go back here for a minute. They have, they talk about buyer's benefits, seller's benefits, but one of the things they have is pricing. So I thought that would be important to talk about what do they charge. They break this down into scenes, scenes meaning how many pictures, you know, like scene might be like the outside of the house or the scene might be the inside of the house, okay? Uh, so they have it scenes, they have the service that they do, they have, they'll tell you what it is that they do, you know, what kinds of things they provide. So for example, for the standard, you get four virtual scenes, you get 12 still photographs, you get a map, you get branding and linking, and then it gives you the price, so that's $100. That means that what you're doing, which is kind of nice, is that for that amount of money, if you're an agent, this person is going out that has the knowledge on how to do this with the right equipment, Okay, with the tripods, the cameras, and everything else, they're going out there, they're taking the photographs, they're taking them correctly so they're well lit, they look good, then they're posting them to the Internet, okay, for you. So when you look at all that, if you've ever tried to do that, that's a very, if you're not skilled at that, that can be a very difficult process, okay, so they're doing this for you. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you an example under their portfolio of one of their houses, and I'm going to pick one right here. This house here, because if I remember, and I tried doing this before the show. Now, how fast it loads is really dependent upon your connection. 
But the first thing that most of these do to give you an orientation here, I'm going to, maybe what I'll do is I'll just, uh, okay. What they're doing here is they give you an outside view of the house. So you can take and zoom around and take a look at the house and then take a look at the street so you can see what the street looks like around, you know, see what the neighborhood looks like uh, before you've ever gone there. Uh, they have a little link here, which is called the types of spins that they have. So this is the front spin. They also have a backyard spin. So this will show you what the backyard of the house has. And this is a nice house. It has, uh, it has a, for example, it has a barbecue right here, a gas barbecue. It has um, a completely fenced backyard. If I remember correctly, I think it also has a really nice swimming pool back here, okay, right back in here. So it's showing you what the house actually looks like so you can see it and view it without you ever leaving your house and seeing the whole, you know, the whole thing. Again, back to the back of the house, that's what the back of the house looks like. They have this little thing here that's go where you can jump, and I would do that if I had the time, but what I'm going to do is try to show you the different views. Here we have the kitchen and the family room, and this will hopefully um, load here fairly quickly. Um, this is the kitchen family room. Again, so you can take a look at what it looks like. That's the kitchen. And this is, this is common today where we have kitchen family room combinations because that's the room where most people are watching TV and cooking popcorn at the same time. You know, that's the whole idea here. The whole family's working. So it gives you that. Uh, the next one is that they are giving you, uh, they give a lot of spins here. They have a, a this is a balcony, or I'm sorry, this is a uh, entry living room spin. So you can see the entry to the house. And you'll see that a lot of these houses that they take pictures of are fairly much the top, higher end of the home. But yet people are continuing to do these on more and more on, um, on, um, on smaller homes. And also there's a lot more being done in the commercial area. So if you're trying to lease out a commercial building, you know, people nowadays are saying, well, what's the office look like? What's the parking lot look like? You know, so on and so forth. Um, you go down here. This happens to be a balcony spin. Let's see what the balcony spin is. This is upstairs. Again, very, very nice home. Very, very nice home. A lot of crown molding in there. Nice balcony. Uh, pretty big house. Uh, let me see if we can go down from here. Uh, this is the master uh, suite. I think this is the master suite. Yeah. So it has a nice fireplace. Um, you know, nice uh, bathroom. You can go in there uh, and uh, uh, master bath. Again, crown molding all throughout the house. Okay. And let me see. If you're interested in the pool, this is the pool in the backyard. Now, one of the things you may find is some of these don't spin, some of them do spin. Here, the focus is, is that it's more important for you to see the pool. And I think we are able to zoom in on, on uh, zoom in or zoom out and take a look at the uh, home. Okay. And uh, let me see what else we may have that I can show you fairly quickly. Uh, master bed, master bath. Okay, this is the master bath here. This happens to be, I don't think this spins either, but you, we can zoom in and zoom out on it. So we can take a look at what that happens to look like. Okay. 
So I think what I really want to kind of emphasize here to you is that this is something that is happening more and more. That's the reason why in the springtime, you know, I'm having a class uh, for the first time where the only college that does this is teaching a class in, in computer applications in real estate. The major reason why is because most people nowadays are doing at least their initial buying and looking for houses on the Internet. The presence that you have, how your house looks, how well it shows is becoming more and more important. It's not uncommon, for example, for people that are selling their house to have an expectation today that you as the agent are going to showcase their house in the best view possible, that it's going, you're going to have a virtual tour for them. Uh, you're going to be showing the good parts of the house. Remember that people are going to be looking at the house coming from all different parts of the neighborhood. In fact, what I always find amazing is when I look at virtual tours up in houses where I happen to live, I'll see views that I didn't know were existing. You know, I'll look at a house that might be down the street or whatever. Uh, there's homes now where you have different types of views. If you have views of the lake or views of the ocean or views, you know, that really look make it look pretty, those are important. They're big selling points for homes, so they become very, very important. So anyway, I wanted to touch that with you. I want to remind you that... Uh, that this site that I've picked out right here is on our website. I think it's important that you're aware that these people exist or that companies like this exist. Take a look at what the tours are like. Find out if it's something, you know, so that you're aware of it, so that people know when you go out to get that listing agreement, you know what they're talking about. Also, it's important that you know what the prices are. You know, what does it really cost to do this? How expensive is it really? And what the other thing I like to say, too, is what kind of collateral materials do they provide? For example, this particular company provides those brochures or provides other things such as you can get postcards that if you want to mail around the neighborhood, if you want to have flyers that you put outside the house or for open houses, they provide that. So they take those photographs that they take and they repurpose them or reuse them for a lot of other uses. Very, very important. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to mention that. So anyway, we're pretty close to the end. We only have a couple minutes left. Um, what I really want to really emphasize to you in this chapter is that we talked about agency and responsibilities. Remember that when you are dealing with clients, you're actually representing their interest. If you're trying to list a house for sale, you're representing the seller. If you're working with buyers, you're representing the buyer. And in a lot of cases, some cases, you may be representing both sides. Uh, you want to make sure that you always put the client's needs above yours. And also keep in mind, too, the importance of disclosure. Disclosure is a very, very important fact today. It's important that the seller and you disclose everything that you know that is materially could affect the property. It's very, very important, and for no other reason, to keep yourself out of trouble, your client, and uh, make sure the buyers are, therefore, are hopefully making a much better decision when they get ready to buy a house. So with that, I think we're pretty much at the end. I want to remind you you should be studying for the second or the first midterm exam, and we'll, next time we actually see each other will probably be when we have the first midterm exam. Thank you very much for watching.